December 4th, 2010, okay? December 4th, 2010, you're not going to be quizzed on this, but that's the day that I got married, okay? And, uh, and it was one of the greatest days of my life. And a lot of people give me flack for saying one of the greatest days, but I do have two kids, and the Saints won the Super Bowl, okay? And so um, all of these things, right, greatest days of my life. December 4th, 2010, wonderful day. I hit the jackpot. Verity's incredible. My in-laws are here, which are phenomenal, so I have to say that, but it's also true, okay? Um, and so it was just this beautiful day. Everything went great. Verity planned an amazing wedding. I think I helped. I'm not sure, but it was just this great day. And I think Verity, on her end, uh, hopefully would have thought, I did okay too. Like, this guy seems like a pretty good guy. I think he loves Jesus. Uh, he seems to be, uh, you know, strikingly handsome and all that kind of stuff as well. And so, uh, so that's the biggest laugh of the day. Thanks. Um, uh, and so that's December 4, 2010. We leave. We did a two-week honeymoon, which, again, for you singles, if you are going to get married, I recommend anywhere from a two to 52-week honeymoon, okay? And so whatever you can get, go for it. It's phenomenal. Okay, so we get two weeks, we go away, and it's truly December 20th, 2014, or sorry, 2010, that becomes the first day that I have the opportunity to just be a normal husband, right? Because when you're on honeymoon, if you're a bad husband on the honeymoon, it doesn't speak super well for what's to come, okay? And so we get to, 2000, or sorry, to December 20th, 2014, it's a Monday, and it's my first chance to go to work, okay, and come back and just live a normal life back in Tempe, Arizona. I'm working for Redemption Tempe. It's my first chance to do things right or do things wrong, and so here's what happens. We get to 5 p.m., end of the work day. I'll say this. Verity's at home cooking a fantastic meal, right? Just real excited for, for me to come home from work, and we're going to do a great little dinner. It's going to be cute. It's going to be awesome. Our first night in our new home together. And then Garth, our worship director, when we're at the office, says, hey, guys, you guys want to go to Four Peaks and grab a, a water? And I said, I'd love some water. And so, so we go, and I leave my phone at the office. Right. You see where this is going. It's about 7 o'clock when we get back to the office. And I go and I get my phone, and it is filled with notifications. And it started with, hey, honey, are you coming home soon? And ended with, I hate you, I want a divorce. <laughs> okay? Filled with a whole lot of other stuff, right? For two hours, in the first opportunity I had to be a good husband, I absolutely blew it, right? In the first chance I had to say, oh, yeah, you're married now. Identity has changed. There's implications and applications to what it means for you to be a good husband now. I completely failed and then chose myself over her, okay? And so I start off with that story because what we're going to talk about today as we get through this spirit-filled marriage text, I want you to know that I'm going to, especially to the fellas in the room, like I'm going to preach pretty heavy-handed because I think it's important. But I want you to know that as I'm preaching, like I'm, I'm public enemy number one, okay? Uh, like I have failed at this over and over and over again, that even over the last three to four weeks prepping this text, I've felt exposed over and over, like, gosh, I, I don't do that, right? And then now I need to, of course, correct 
Okay, and, and so that's it. Now, um, this will talk about wives as well. And so there's going to be things, ladies, that if you're here and you're married or if you aspire to that, that you need to analyze as well because this is not one-sided. It's not one side fix yourself and our side just hang out and that's either direction. It's, there's this beautiful thing I think the Lord is trying to do in the midst of marriage. And so that's what we're looking at. Now, a few things that make this a difficult text to preach. First, I think the church has often told uh, much of the single population in church that marriage is the destination. And I think that's just foolish. It's not, right? Um, I think we've kind of sold and, and peddled part of the faith is, well, hey, listen, if you're single, you better eventually get married. Like, this is going to complete you. This is where you're going to go. And that's just silly. We've said over and over and over the last few months that what our destination is, is Jesus, right? Like, we're trying to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the destination. Even heaven. Heaven's not the destination. Jesus is the destination, and heaven's the amazing bonus we get on the other side of that. So hear me. If you're single, I know we're preaching a whole text on marriage, and so please don't hear like, oh, they're always just telling me to get married. That's not it. If marriage ends up being where you're at, which for 90, I think it's like 94% of the church, that's where it will happen, that's amazing. If it doesn't end up being your desti- a destination, that's okay too. And they often think I had a person, this is like a couple years ago, say like, man, like, wh- where's, where's my sermon? You know? And I'm like, every week is your sermon. Like every week is how do you apply the gospel to your context in your life? And so I, please don't be like upset or frustrated that we're taking this week because we're just going through the book of Ephesians to talk to married couples and then you who would aspire to that as well. Okay? Uh, and again, like I said, in the midst of that, I think there's something we can all glean from this as well. Um, The second thing is um, we want to, I want to, interpret this text through the lens of culture, okay? Uh, And and that's going to happen no matter what. But here's what we do. I think we often do it through the contemporary culture that we live in. So the external pressures and forces that say, hey, this is the way that you should properly interpret this thing. And so we let the world dictate how the church interprets the text, which we cannot do. And that's true for any scripture in the entire Bible, Okay. Um, the second part to that, though, <coughs> is that we also have internal cultures that we have established. In other words, there are people in this room that have seen this text be abused. Right? There, there's kids in this room that you saw a father abuse this text in a way that tore the family apart, that actually physically or emotionally tore down a spouse Some of you live those realities, and so you listen, I know you bring kind of that vision and that lens and that culture to this text. I understand that, okay? Some of you are wives or husbands who've lived in unhealthy marriages before. Maybe, and hear me, there's some of you that might be in the room that that's your present reality. And so when you hear this text, immediately there's a lens, there's a culture that you approach it with internally. And so my prayer, even before, and will continue to be, even as the sermon's going, is that the Spirit of God will give us fresh eyes to see what the text is saying. So the culture that we do interpret this with is kingdom culture, right? It is Jesus Christ, Spirit-filled, kingdom of God type of cultural lens so we could see, man, what are you trying to paint here? And is it something far more beautiful than anything maybe we could interpret on our own? And, and that's, that's kind of what I think it is. Um, there is... There is a... What is this? Like this desire to go towards labels here. 
Uh, and the two labels, if you're not familiar, are complementarian and egalitarian, is, is usually the way that this, this debate, if you will, ends up going. Complementarian, uh, essentially saying that the two, that husband and wife complement each other, equal value, separate roles in marriage, uh, and egalitarian, where it's saying, uh, no, like all complete, total value and stuff like that, but there's, there's no difference, there's no separation, everyone is, is equal, the, the playing field is completely equal and on all that kind of stuff, right? And so um, there's a great book that I would highly recommend to you if you want to dive further, it's called... Uh, not complementarian nor egalitarian, right? Um, and I think it's very helpful because sometimes labels and language actually hinder us from being able to approach a text in a healthy way. Like th those labels, albeit, albeit helpful at a certain degree, I think uh, have become in some ways unhelpful because there's such a wide range of people within each category that it's really difficult to understand what we're saying. And so, again, what we're trying to do is, is let go of some of that and approach the text fresh, Okay, um, and the last thing I'll say is we only have like 35 minutes left to preach this, and so there's going to be a lot of stuff. You're like, well, why didn't you say this about marriage? And why didn't you? And I get that, I understand, and we have something for you at the end to hopefully address some of that. So just be patient in the midst of all this. We won't be able to cover how to have a perfect marriage in 35 minutes. It just isn't going to happen, right? But we are going to try and go big picture to give you a thrust and a desire to press in well. And then if you are single, to desire well, okay? So that's, that's the goal. Let's talk last week. Ephesians 17, or 5, 17 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to grab one from us. Our interns will bring one to you. Uh, just slip up your hand. We pass these out literally every single week because we'd love for you to follow along with us. So just slip your hand up, and you can have that. If you don't own a Bible, you do now. It's our free gift to you, so please enjoy that. Turn to Ephesians 5, verse 17. If you don't know what that is in your Bible, just ask your neighbor. They can help you find it. Ephesians 5, I'll start reading as you guys look. It says this, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's verse 21, Submitting to one another out of reverence, for Christ. And so the text we'll talk about today, verses 22 through 33, they really start in verse 17. Because what we talked about last week was God crafting in us the spirit-filled person. That last week we are to be spirit-filled individuals if we're here and we are indeed filled with the spirit, per Romans 8, 9, like we talked about last week. That if we are Christians, the spirit of God indwells the believer, okay? And so we are spirit-filled individuals as we live in obedience to him. And so it is the spirit-filled individual and the spirit-filled individual that are now brought together in the spirit-filled marriage. And so that's the context for how we do this. Now, what we see already in verses 17 through 21, that the context for the desire for the spirit-filled individual is to revere and make much of God. To revere and give glory to and make famous the name of Jesus. That what we do individually, that as we live this out, Jesus gets the praise. He gets the honor. He gets the glory. And so then with our marriages, the same is true. Okay? And so let's, let's start with our first verse in today's text Ephesians 5, just skip ahead a little bit. We're going to start at the end here and then work our way backwards. And so let's start in verse 32. It says this. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, so this mystery is profound. So this union, this marriage thing, I'll just paraphrase for you, it is, it is a symbol of Christ and the church. 
That at the end day, listen, the primary, okay, the primary person in a marriage is Christ. Okay? That marriage is not primarily about you. It's not primarily about me. It's primarily about Christ and the church and something bigger and more beautiful and grandiose than anything that we could fathom up, that God is writing something more beautiful than just these individuals, but something together and altogether amazing, okay? And so it starts there. And it gives us then the foundation for, well, what does a spirit-filled marriage look like? How do we get there? It has to start with a vision of marriage that is pulled from the context of 2018 Western America and says, no, this is something God does. Like, this is something that God has ordained. And we're going to look at the very end about how this is a story that God is not just writing in verses 17 through 33 to the Ephesian church, but it's a story that God's writing from Genesis to Revelation, and we'll circle back to that at the end. But that marriage is altogether something far more profound. Now, here's the reality. Um, So much of the pushback to some of this which saddens me because I think, again, what's here is something very beautiful. So much of the pushback is because I don't think we often see the real deal. Like if the real deal is a marriage where Christ in the church, hello, boys, how's it going, Finn? How you doing, man? Give me some right there. No, boy, I can't bring you up. I mean, hey, you want to, I love you. I don't know what to do. (laughs) I love you, buddy. All right. Um, We're going to do... Just as a heads up, spirit-filled parenting next week, okay? Uh, And then that's actually not even a joke. Like, next week is spirit-filled parenting. And so all you students are like, why do we go to this church, you know? Uh, Again, it's just those two weeks. But then on Family Sunday, which we do every fifth Sunday of the month, so it's coming up at the end of September, we're going to preach a sermon, a shortened sermon on spirit-filled kids, okay? So if there's ever a sermon, parents, for you to bring your kids to, we are going to fix them, and your life is going to be perfect, okay? And so spirit-filled kids, end of the month. Okay, so um, the mystery, okay, so what were we saying? Okay. Uh, my son ran down, okay, um, that ultimately, okay, well, let me look back, oh yeah, the best way to figure out whether or not something is real or not is, is by knowing the real deal, and if you're going to, and I think what most, most of us have done, it really threw me off, I'm back, um, what the, we need to do is realize we haven't seen the real deal too often, and because we don't know the real deal, we fall for knockoffs, Okay? Like, we just buy into knockoff level of marriage because, ah, we haven't really seen the real deal played out all that well that often. Like, if you go overseas, how many people have traveled overseas before, right? And if you go to one of these markets, all of a sudden, you can buy a bag by Gunky, right? And you're like, Gunky, oh, Gucci. It's supposed to be Gucci, but they put an N in there, right? Or they just do these different types of brands. They're like, hey, we can't actually put Nike on this, so instead we'll put Unke or something. And it's just these really random things. And so if you're in that context and all you know is gunky, you don't know that something better exists. You don't know that the real deal is out there. And so here, I think for a lot of us, like we've just seen knockoffs. And, and some of us are living knockoff-esque marriages are not living up to the beautiful, real deal picture that we're supposed to be presenting the world of Christ in the church. Because there's this reality that our marriages have a mission to them, right? That marriage is mission. 
That if, hear me, if ultimately marriage is about Christ and the church, that means that the way I love my wife and the way my wife loves me, what we present to the world is presenting the gospel to the world. There's a missional component to just being married and doing it the way Christ has done it for the church. Okay? So let's keep going. We're going to break this down into the specifics. Now moving again kind of backwards, verse 23. We're going to start with the husbands just because I am one and have a lot to say. Okay, here we go. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and is, uh, sorry, his body and is himself its savior. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, listen, this text throughout history okay, has been used to oppress and has been used to lord a man over a woman. And, and, and listen, not just in the marriage context, outside of the marriage context, we need to acknowledge that and we need to repent of that, okay? Where the church has played party to that, right? We need to repent of that. Whereas individuals, we have played party to that, we need to repent of that in the ways that this text has been abused to be something that it's not. And a few of those ways we're going to talk about right now. When you first read this text... And that's that gas moment. It's really funny. Sometimes when I'm doing marriage uh, premarital, we'll start talking through, hey, what text do you want to use for your, your, uh, your ceremony? And a lot of times, eh, Ephesians 5, that's a great marriage text. And it's funny because I'll be up there and we're presenting the text and we'll just read straight through it. And a lot of times it's really funny. You hear like this audible gas from the, from the, from the attending people like, did he just say, did he just say, that the husband is the head of the wife, that he's the ruler over the wife, that he can do whatever he wants to the wife, and it's all this stuff starts rolling through the mind about what's said, and that's not what's said. See, here's what's amazing about this text, what I love about this text, is that what is absolutely crazy to us in this culture today is not what was crazy to them then. So, so hear me, in our culture today, we read the passage about women, which we'll read in just a moment, and man, like our culture begins to melt, like, oh my gosh, what does this mean, and da, 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 how dare they? Now, it's the text about the husbands that would have sent the entire Roman world in a huge hissy fit, that they would have been saying, whoa, wait a minute, you're telling me that the head sacrifices for the body? No, 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 friend, that's not how this works. Let me read you a couple quotes from Plutarch, ancient philosopher, author. He says this, Since the common good demands that the most important part be preserved in order to ensure the survival of the whole, for the head to endanger itself is seen not as a noble action, but rather as a misguided one. Instead, it was the duty of the leader to see to his own safety so that he could ensure the safety of all. Plutarch summarizes the worth of the commander is a great thing, and his first duty is to save the one who saves everything else. And listen, every author of antiquity, if you go back and you read, they're going to say, listen, now the head doesn't sacrifice for the body. The body sacrifices for the head. That the head gets to protect itself, keep itself, 
do what's necessary for itself to flourish at the expense of the body. And so what's happening here is Paul's coming back in through the Spirit saying, this is what marriage looks like, and saying, no, no, we are going to redeem marriage. We're going to redeem what it was supposed to look like in the very beginning, but then sin entered the world, and we'll come back to that at the end. You see, the revolutionary part of the Bible in this part was that the man would, would be head and yet sacrifice and lay himself down for the sake of his bride. How do you carry this stuff out? It's simple. Listen, ask one question. How does Christ, how has and how does Christ treat the church? Husbands, that's very simple, right? Just ask that question. How does Christ treat the church I think there's four unhelpful knockoffs that husbands can trend towards, and I'm sure there's more, but these are the four that I continued to kind of come back to, okay? There's four unhelpful knockoffs, then we'll come back to the real thing. The first of the knockoffs, and again, as we joke here, I'm a preacher, and so I love alliteration, and so they're all H's. You're welcome, okay? The first one, the hateful husband, Okay, fellas, this is, this is the husband, right? You've allowed frustration and bitterness in your heart, and that can be external or in your home. It can be because of your wife or because of other things, but you've become a frustrated and bitter person, and so you take that out on her, right? So you don't engage, you don't pursue. In fact, most of what you kind of live in is this self-frustrated and unforgiving reality where everything is everyone else's fault. And you bring that into the home, and so you blame it on her, you blame it on your kids. You're just disgruntled, and you're angry, and you're hateful. Okay. The second one is the hard-to-find husband. You're absent even when you're present. But you come home, but you're not really there. Your wife's trying to talk to you, but you're not really listening. And so what you do is, is what I've done in the past is you hide that behind the comment, well, I'm just not emotional. That is total crap, okay? Listen, if you go across and you study all the studies, and I've studied all of them, um, I've studied a lot, I've read a lot on this, right? Men don't have less emotions, they just react to them less, okay? Like, there's all sorts of emotions that go on inside of men and inside of women, the reaction is different, but some of that, I'm going to tell you, is probably culturally derived. That, hey, no, we, we, we keep it in, right? We, we keep it tucked inside here. We're, we're not supposed to be emotional. And so we hide that stuff, and we put that stuff in here. We kind of stifle our hearts by this lie saying, ah, I'm just not emotional. Yes, you are. I know you are. Because when we get together and we start pushing in stuff, you start sharing some real emotion. But there's this thought that you're not supposed to be. And so, husband, listen, you're hard to find. Like, even sometimes physically, you just, you're not there. Emotionally, you're not there. Okay? This is weird with the in-laws, but sexually, you're not there. Okay? You're unavailable. And, right, that's, that's just kind of weird in our context. It's like, no, the man, he just wants sex. No. Like, like, we do a lot of miracles. We'll meet with a lot of couples who are like, no, you're distant, you're away. And so even if you're, listen, even if you're engaging in sex with your wife, you're somewhere else. You're not there. It's hard to find. Okay. There's this show. You guys ever watch Parenthood? Anybody watch that show? Yeah, anybody? There's this, there's this uh, part towards the end of the, the series, right, where the husband and wife, they begin to have some marital troubles. And so the, the, the grandfather... They has to go to counseling or something. And one of the things he has to say to his wife every time that she begins to talk to him, she says, I hear you and I see you, right? 
Hirian is that he has to slow down. He has to stop being somewhere else where he's thinking about something else, what he has to do at work or uh, some sports score or whatever your thing is, right? He has to pull himself back and say, no, I hear you and I see you and I'm here and I'm available and I'm engaged. And hear me, it is an intentional thing, husbands. It's not something that just happens. You have to go and say, no, I'm going to be present. When I come home from work, I get home around 5.30, generally most days, right? Whenever I pull into the driveway, okay, I have a little prayer that says, hey, like, Lord, help me be present. Like, help me be focused. Help me be engaged. Because I know my mind will just want to think about what it wants to think about. I know I'll just want to be selfish and just do me. Okay? Well, that's not what I'm called to. Okay, the, the third one is the hedonistic husband, which is you desire your own pleasure over your responsibility. So hedonism is pleasure is, of, is the utmost. And so it just means you're just choosing things that make your life better or easier over the responsibility you have to be this type of husband. And so you, so you choose to go get a, a beer. I had a beer, okay? Uh, a beer with friends. <laughs> Uh, at Four Peaks on the first chance you have to be a good husband. Uh, You choose, instead of helping clean in the house, right, Uh, or or taking care of the kids, putting the kids down, you choose to play video games. And it's not, listen, this isn't an attack on beer or video games. It's an attack on, listen, you're choosing your own pleasure over your responsibility to be this type of husband, which we're going to show the real deal in just a moment. And you choose these things. We're like, no, no, no. A lot of this just then comes to time, right? Where you, listen, men, we often live in that freedom. Husbands, we're like, hey, you know what? Like, the time thing is, it's more my time. Especially us who have kids. We're like, ah, you know what? I'll make a plan because I have the freedom to just make a plan. No, you don't. Not anymore. You're in a covenant relationship with someone else. Your time is not your own. You need to check on things. And again, Public enemy number one. I make plans for our whole life, and Verity Day of finally gets to hear sometimes. And that is sinful and wrong and selfish. Choosing my own pleasure over responsibility I have. Okay? And the last one is the haughty husband. Now, hear me. Not haughty like he's hot. Okay? Like haughty. It's a haughty husband, right? So we don't do this here, but turn to your neighbor and say haughty. He's haughty, right? So, so the, the, the haughty, you have to say, that's, just, that's the way you have to say that word. Otherwise, it sounds like I'm being weird. So that's still weird. They're both weird. So the haughty husband. What does haughty mean? Haughty means arrogantly superior. You just think you're better. And you take a text like this that says you're the head and you live like it. And some of it, it's not even, right, it flows out of action, but it starts in a posture of self that says, no, I'm the husband. If you've ever thought, no, I'm the husband, this is you. Okay. You're not superior. That is a lie from Satan. And so someone's like, well, I don't think that. But if your actions show it, if your body language shows it, if you sit gleefully on the couch while your wife toils around you, this is you. Now, it doesn't mean that this is all of you. It's not your identity. It's just you're living wrong. You need to repent to God. You need to ask your wife for forgiveness. And you need to course correct. Okay? So what's, what's the real deal then? 
okay? Um, well, let me say this. This is actually very important, and I had it written off the side, so I, I forgot to almost say it. I didn't even give like an H to this one because in some ways the H thing is kind of, it's, it's fun for us to kind of learn, and H's, and this is not funny, but um, if you're abusing your wife, like, and, and I was, you know, like I, I kind of do a quick run through of the sermon before we get out here, make sure it kind of still makes sense. And I'm in the back, and like there's, like just, I just get angry. And so I, I, wanna, I want you to hear this very clearly. Like, if you are emotionally abusive, if you are physically abusive, okay, I, I want to do things that are ungodly, and I want to say things even now that would probably be ungodly. But if there is a whiff of that, wife or husband, and I, it's generally wife though, Right? But there's some situations where the husband too, if that's you, please come talk to us. Like, please do not stay in that. Talk to someone. And I know the levels of difficulty that exist there, but please talk to someone about that. There's, there's lots of help out there. And husbands, if that's you, because that's where we're at, stop. I mean, like, I mean, I know it's not that. Just stop. I swear it's not, it won't go well for you. And I don't mean like I'm going to chase after you. I mean, it's just that is so demonic. Like straight from the heart of the devil to treat someone that God has brought into your life for his glory, you treat less than in that way. Wow. Okay. There's a book that I was reading by Leslie Vernick, and, and if you're just, you just kind of want to learn more in this space, it's called The Emotionally Destructive uh, Marriage. And it's a, it's a really good book, like really helpful. And I tell you, the statistics, and she works in the church, the statistics of couples and churches that are experiencing physical and emotional abuse, like legitimate physical and emotional abuse, like had me weeping, okay? That the percentage is far higher than anything you'd expect. And I'm not saying there's people in our, in our church. I, hope, I pray, like I literally pray there's not. But statistically, there should be if we live up to statistics, which, hey, let's hopefully that's just not true. Okay. So don't think I'm sharing this because, oh, well, that doesn't happen here. Yeah, it does. It happens in your neighbors' houses. and It happens in your cities. It happens in your schools. It's all over the place. I'd often read that book, like I'd be at Tourist Home reading that book, and people would come over, like people we know, and they're like, hey, are you and Barry okay? <laughs> I was like, no, we're good. Like, I'm, I'm studying, you know. This stuff is serious. Okay, so please talk to someone. Okay, um, here's the real deal. We'll move quick with this. Um, you get to the real deal by living and obeying the answer to the question of how does Christ treat the church. It's that simple. Okay, so first, what did he do? Christ pursued the bride. So he pursued the church. He came after us. No matter what was done to him throughout the history of the world, no matter what was done to Christ, Christ continued to pursue the church. He came after his bride over and over and over. It did not matter how the world nor his bride treated him. When we sin, when we reject, when we disobey, he says, I'm still coming. That's what Christ did for the church. So husbands, 
pursue your wives without reservation. Okay? Without reservation, go, move. Excuse me, the second one. Christ moved close to his bride. Husbands, move close to your wives. Christ moved in, right? So hear me. He didn't just stay up in heaven and say, hey, I'm God. This is what I do. So you guys just start taking care of everything down here. No, no, no. He said, I'm coming to town. And he came into town humbly as a baby into a manger to pursue his bride, to draw close to his bride, to be there physically, right? He became physically present with his bride. He became emotionally present with his bride. That in everything he did, he was completely intentional in every part of his life, working together. Why? To make sure the bride would flourish. That everything he did brought him to a moment in time where he died for the sins of the world, for the church to be raised up to flourish. He moved close, he moved in. Um, Three, Christ worked for his bride. Okay, So once he was here, and, and I don't even just mean job, I mean he used all of his gifts, all of his talents, all of himself, again, that she would flourish. That the bride would flourish, much and often at the expense of self. Christ employed all of himself to bring flourishing to the bride. And then lastly, Christ died for his bride. You want to know what it means to biblically be the head of your household? It means to die to yourself every day. It means to lay down all of you for the sake of the flourishing of your bride. Every aspect of who you lay it down for the sake of your bride. That's what headship looks like now. It's not headship the way the entire world wanted it to be. That's why the Romans were freaking out about this text. It was a very, I mean, extremely patriarchal society where the husband ruled with an iron fist. So here comes Paul saying, no, no, we're not changing roles. We're redeeming the way they're supposed to be lived out. Because no more of this, it's this. It's Christ coming underneath. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. Men, like, he, he laid down desire. He laid down his desire. Let's remember, right? Garden of Gethsemane, we talked about last week. Lord, could this cup pass from me? God says, nope, you need to go do this for the sake of the bride. His desire was, I don't want to go to the cross but not my will, but your will be done. Gentlemen, lay down even your desires that your bride would flourish. That she would be lifted up. That's your role. That's headship. That's what it means to be a spirit-filled husband. Next. Um, There's this beautiful reality that we go back to Genesis chapter 3 where Adam... He has this moment where him and his wife, they sin, they disobey God, okay? And we see see this amazing moment. Again, I want to focus on on, on Paul redeeming these roles. I think they're there. I think they're clear in Scripture, okay? There's debate in that. I get that, right? I think they're there, and I think they're clear, and I think they're meant to be beautifully worked out, 
but I think it was all lost. So you go back to Adam, right? So what happens? God comes back into the garden after Adam and Eve have sinned, and he goes to Adam and says, hey, dude, what happened? And what does he say? He says, the woman that you gave to me, she ate, right? The woman that you, so she goes from being his bride and his companion that God has provided to being his out. Right? He, she's, he's gone from being this thing that the Lord, this thing, this, this person that the Lord has brought into his life for flourishing and for goodness to glorify the Father in heaven and to cultivate the world and he has treated her like an object that allows him to make his life easier. So we wonder where all this stuff comes from. Why all of a sudden do we, are we not a people? Is the church not known for living this type of marriage? Why isn't the world saying, why is marriage so successful in the church? Why aren't they asking that question? Why aren't they coming to the church and saying, man, how do you do this? How is it that husbands do this for their wives and, and wives do this for their husbands? How, how do you do that? We say, What's the gospel? But no, we've allowed what has seeped in through sin in the very beginning to seep into our lives today. Okay. Now the beautiful thing about Christ, the first Adam, right, wishes to save self and so he blames her. Notice the second Adam, Jesus Christ says he wishes to save us so he blames himself. You see what Christ is doing is he's redeeming that which was lost. A beautiful, amazing picture of what marriage is supposed to be, and that's what I think Adam, or sorry, Paul is trying to do too. Okay, we need, I need to move quick. I'm sorry. So Ephesians 5, 22 uh, through, 20, uh, through 24, let's talk and switch to wives, okay? Um, this text, again, uh, oftentimes seen through an incredibly negative lens, and I understand why. Again, abused very much. Uh, and so we're going to talk about some of this, but I want to say this on the front end. Um, I, I don't think, see, this is what would have been expected of people within the Roman Empire as well. So if you're in Asia Minor, if you're in Ephesus, this role here, no, this is what would have been expected. There's not a huge change. The difference is in the community of God is that this role would be embraced with joy and lived in a context of self-sacrifice from the partner. Okay? So when you get to this part, it's like, wives, do, like, do this. But here's the context is a husband who's constantly dying to self, right? A Christ figure who's constantly given us his spirit to live in so that we might glorify him. That, that is the context of the thing. So here we go. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, and is Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So, so again, like, like tough, tough text, right? Like, like what, what does this really all kind of look like? Now, um, last time I'll say this, because I, I don't want to belabor it, but I do want to keep bringing it up. Um, this has been forced on wives in a way that is unhealthy. And again, I want to acknowledge, and I'll just say from the pulpit, sorry, and, and Verity, I'm sorry if I've ever lived this out, and, and church, if we've ever taught in such a way, or if there's just things right, that you've experienced, I'm sorry for that reality. But I do think there's something very beautiful here in the text that lives in this beautiful marriage thing that God's done giving us these roles. And so... Um, in the context, not of trepidation to these verses, but in joy, I want to talk about this word submit, okay? 
Submit just means uh, to be subject to, right? To, to, to willingly place self underneath, okay? To willingly engage in and say, no, I will willingly put myself down here, right? To serve and to lift up and to acknowledge, okay? And here, here's, we have to ask then the question of how does the church love Christ, if the answer to how do we become spirit-filled husbands is how does, the ch- how does Christ love the church? Spirit-filled wives, the question becomes how does the church love Christ, right? And here's the answer. We fully give all of ourselves and all our talents and all our giftings and all our beauty and all our everything to submit unto him. And hear me, don't hear it as this subject as in push down, but I want you to hear it as a, no, I lift up and I raise all of me to you for the sake of a greater glorious picture of how Christ is reconciling with the church. Whilst knowing that while you're doing this, he's going, yep, and I'm coming up underneath and I'm lifting you too because my call is to die to self so that you would flourish. And your call is to fully submit all of yourself and all of your gifting and all of your talent and all of your wisdom to your husband. And the cycle continues. And a beautiful thing is pictured and imaged out of that, of the gospel. Now there's a reality to husbands. You know what, I'll about me. I have not always given enough space and room to my wife for her talents and her gifts and her wisdom to flourish in our marriage. I haven't asked enough questions. I'm very like, like task-oriented, so I'm like, I'm just going to roll ahead and I'm going to do. And a lot of times all that really does is kind of steamroll forward while my wife tries to cling on as we move at 1,000 miles per hour. I have not always created the space intentionally where her giftings and her talents, her desires, her wants, her person would feel flourished. And that's something I need to fix. Because wives, if we're asking, and I think the text is saying, no, take all of you. Right? Take all of you and submit it. Say, here's, here's what I offer. Here's what I bring. Man, if we're going to say, yeah, but I'm fine. That's on us. No wonder this sounds so terrible. So husbands, if, if you're doing that, right, that's, that's, that's another course correction. This repents, God, sorry that I do this. And wives, please don't lose hope and lose heart. I mean, like, on the, like, your gifting, your wisdom, your talents, you as a person, not even what you offer, just you as a person, you are absolutely necessary and vital to the presentation of the gospel through your marriage, to the success of your, 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 your marriage. And anything that has pushed away at that, I'm so sorry for. In the very beginning, when God is creating Adam and Eve, he creates Adam and everything's really good. And then he gets to the end of this thing, end of this creation. And he looks upon the creation that something is missing. And he says, he looks upon what is it and ends up being woman. That woman's not there. Man spends his time looking at the garden stuff. We're going to talk about this in a moment. And, and woman gets this title of helper, right? 
And man, like that term within our cultural context just sounds so bad. Like the helper, the help, right? The subjugated, the less than, the, ah, yeah, you can help with that. It's like what I say to Finley. Like, Finley, yeah, you can help, right? But here's, we, we lose some of the beauty in the translation. Because the word that is used there in helper in Genesis chapter uh, 2 is the word ezer. Now, ezer is used a bunch of times throughout the Old Testament. And every time but one in the Psalms, every time but one in all of the Old Testament, it's used to talk about God himself. That God is our helper. That God counsels, helps us, that he fully contributes all of himself so that we might flourish. The term helper we have abused to subjugate when the Bible, when it was written, was meant to lift up and say, woman, you are God's vice regent to bringing life and goodness in this marriage and in this world. It's meant to lift up and to exhort and we've kind of subjugated it to something else. So, so hear me in, in total. I think that what Christ is doing, I think what Paul is writing is I don't think he's getting rid of roles or he's pushing against roles. With it. I think he's taking them and redeeming them to be what God intentionally set up in the beginning. Adam and Eve, this perfect, beautiful picture that God had brought together, complemented by different skill sets and giftings and personalities, et cetera, et cetera. And he has established in this, this beautiful way where even in the marriage, like everything, that it would preach the gospel to the world. That husbands, when you love your wives, gospel. Wives, when you love your husbands, gospel. But it takes a complete reorientation and rethinking of what this text means. And guess what? It's laying it down, as we keep saying. You lay your life down. You lay your life down. Okay, and again, there's 8,000 more things I wish we could talk about right now. We just don't have the time. Okay. I'm going to invite up uh, Anthony and Jessica G to come talk to us for just a little bit. Um, because I know there's a lot of more stuff to talk about. And I know this stuff uh, we didn't vet out perfectly and all that. Um, and so we wanted to provide another option for, for marriages. Um, and so we're going to talk about that at the end. But um, Anthony and Jessica, obviously Anthony, uh, one of the pastors here. Jessica, if you haven't met her, his rock star wife, um, they moved up here with us when we planted the church, have been kind of literally pretty much running the church with us since the very beginning. And so we love them dearly. Um, and so do you just want to, I, I just hand it over to you, and if you want to tell the story of why we're even having you up here and, and where we're going. Uh, yeah. Um, so probably a few months ago, uh, or probably about almost a year ago now at this point, uh, me and Jess, we just kind of realized uh, we were just bad at conflict. We just felt stuck in it. We've been married now uh, a little over seven years. And so... Uh, there was a particular fight we had, and I was just like, what should we do? And Jess was like, man, we, we really, we need counseling. And so um, the prideful part of me was like, no, we don't. I'm a pastor, right? <laughs> and, like, they're just going to tell me what I already know. And so that's my side of it. I don't know. You kind of say your side of what made you want to do that, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit more after that. 
I think um, Anthony and I come from backgrounds where we know a lot about, you know, here are the things that you should do to be a good spouse. And like Anthony said, we, we've both read a number of books and listened to a lot of sermons um, of all the, the things that we knew we should be doing, but I really felt like we needed someone from an out, with an outside perspective to come in and speak life and speak truth to both of us. So that was kind of my heart for counseling. Yeah, so I began to kind of look for something that I thought would be really good for some biblical counselors because I felt like that's what we needed in particular. And so uh, another redemption pastor I knew, he, he was telling me about something him and his wife uh, were doing with some counselors in Phoenix and it sounded really good. And so uh, we reached out to these two counselors. It's a husband and a wife. And, um, and we, we began to, to go to the counselors. And so uh, do you want me just a little bit talk about what that's like? Or? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, going to the counselors, like I said, uh, Vince can vouch for this. Uh, I think the week before I went, I was having lunch with Vince and, and Jeff in our church, and, and I was like, yeah, I just, I just don't know if it's going to help. Like, because I was like, I'm just kind of a mess. And my thing was like, I'm a mess, and I know the gospel, and I know what's wrong with me, and it just seems like I can't get out of some certain habits, and, and it wasn't like crazy or anything, but I just felt like a little bit of despair and a little bit of pride in myself of like, no, like, I just need to kind of um, buckle down and do this, and so uh, we end up going to, to the counselors, and, and it's great because... Uh, I think what I don't need is, like, tools, like, to count down from 10 uh, when you're angry or, uh, you know, just basically all the songs in Daniel Tiger. I don't need that. Um, <laughs> Use your but, <laughs> yeah, Use I don't your need, <laughs> I don't need that. But what I need is, like, I just need to understand how good Jesus has been to me and how good the gospel is and how that's real for me and, and kind of apply that. And so these counselors did a great job of just speaking, helping me speak the gospel to myself in, in very specific ways, instead of just kind of saying, well, Jesus died for my sins, so I shouldn't get in a fight with my wife, but to look at some of my heart motivations of, of ways that li Jesus lived and, and treated me in order uh, to, to save me and redeem me and the kind of things that he had to go through that now I, because of the Spirit in me, get to live out. And so... Um, so for me, counseling has been incredible because they just helped me learn in my pride even how to better serve her, how to better die for her like this text says to do, and how in the midst of that, how it, it can be a joyful pursuit. I don't mean a happy pursuit, but a, a pursuit where I feel more content. So I'll let you talk a little bit what's counseling been like for you. Um, I agree. I think it's also been really helpful. I'm really thankful that we both went. I think the thing that I've been most encouraged by is I think I came into counseling sort of with this expectation of like, okay, this is going to be the turning point. This is going to be something that's really good for us. And right away, we're going to start seeing changes. Um, and what Kimball and Elizabeth were helping us see and what God was teaching me is that we are on a journey and that, you know, um, I think for us, counseling has been a, a couple steps in the right direction. And, um, that, um, like Anthony was saying, the ability to preach the gospel to ourselves when I am feeling like, man, this is hard, and man, this feels like a death to self in this moment, I can look to God for comfort, and out of that, have an ability to love Anthony better. Um, so, yeah, I just think that um, we are on a journey, and by God's grace, we will continue to, to become better spouses to one another. Nice. Yeah, I love that. And so, kind of as we went through it, and I just began to feel like, man, this is... 
uh, really changing my heart, and it's really helping me in those areas where I felt like, man, I, I just feel despair. I don't know if I'm going to change in these ways. I want to. Uh, they helped me to see where I could just gaze at Jesus and, and actually begin to change, although I still, I still need help. And so um, as we finished it up, I kind of was like, man, I would love if everybody in our church could experience what we uh, were experiencing. And so we're going to put you all in marriage counseling. No. Um, <laughs> All of it. Yeah. So I reached out actually to our counselors, Kimball and Elizabeth, and I said, hey, I, I, I kind of expressed that heart. I said, well, would you guys teach something for us? Would you teach a conference? Would you do all that? And, and I love the response. The response right away was, you know what? Conferences don't always really help that much. For a few days, we feel better about our marriages, but then we go back into the same bad habits. And so they proposed something different to us uh, that we're going to participate in as a congregation because I think it's a little bit more intensive and I think it will push our marriages to heart change. And so let me say this on the front end. I, I talk to, to a lot of you who are married. I talk, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pastor in this church, and so I hear about a lot of your marriages. And um, I know that a lot of your marriages are probably in um, healthier places than me and Jess's marriage was at different points, and some are maybe not as healthy places. Um, but I, I really think that going through this thing that I'm about to describe would be beneficial to anyone's marriage, even if it feels really strong, or even if there's just a little few snafus in it or whatever. And so I, I went to them, and they proposed we do this thing called uh, a marriage boot camp. And so this is how this works, is there's going to be two different meetings where they meet with us, one on September 28th, and then, or no, September 30th, I'm sorry, Sunday, September 30th, and then October 28th, which is another Sunday. And so at the first meeting, um, there's kind of two ways you can interact with their, with their teachings and their counselings. They're actually going to do two small groups of small group counselling, and that's open to five couples each, so ten couples total in our church. Um, and they're going to just kind of do like what they did with me and Jess, but with a group of five couples at a time um, for two hours. And then on those same dates from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m., there's going to be an open uh, teaching time. And they're very interactive in their teaching. At least they were with us. And so that part will be interactive as well. And that's going to be open to any couple in our church, anyone um, that, that's married and, and wants some, some tools for, for living out the gospel in their marriage. And so, so yeah, I just, I, I highly suggest uh, being part of this. If you feel stuck in your marriage at all, if you're kind of feeling like, I don't know if I'm going to move forward, I highly, highly suggest the small group participation. And uh, I know that it's weird to be like, hey, I'm going to do this group counseling with four random couples from my church, potentially. Um, but I just came up on stage and admitted I'm, I'm not great in marriage, you know? So I understand we, we are messy people who need Jesus. And so let's just be messy together and seek Jesus together. And so I don't know if you have anything to add about kind of that, that this experience or how you would kind of push people into it. She has nothing. All right, so... <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I don't know if you have any questions about it or any thoughts. or No, yeah. Would you guys, uh, I want to pray for the G's and just kind of pray for marriages in here now. Uh, and then to be part of that, like all you need to do is just stop by the Connect desk or fill out a Connect card or something like that. And we'll just connect, we'll like, you know, start dialoguing with you about all the information. 
um, we generally think, like, if you're married, you should at least go to the thing on the 30th, the, the big group thing. Um, if, you, if you want uh, to kind of push even deeper in, we would love to, to have you at the small group thing. In fact, my wife and I, we're going to be uh, one of the 10 couples, so there's only nine slots left, so you better hurry up and sign up. Uh, but when we'd love to, to have you join us in there as well. We think it's going to be uh, an opportunity for some real, real like gospel-centered change in our marriages. Um, that make much of him and, and celebrate him. So um, let's pray for them, and, and then uh, I've got two thoughts, and then we're, we'll be done. God, uh, we just pray for Anthony and Jess. God, first, just thanks, thanks for the ways you've gifted the both of them. They're just, they're just awesome couple, Lord, that you have used in tremendous ways for your kingdom, both as individuals before they even met each other, and then, God, as they were dating and the way that they served together, and, Lord, the way that they've served together in marriage. Thank you for, the, for them as parents. Uh, for Amelie and Cora, Lord, thank you for the way that they raised them. We pray a united front on them on the, on the way that they raise those kids. God, we pray that all the stuff that they're learning, God, at the end of the day, it's, it's just them believing stuff that the Spirit has embedded in their hearts and minds already. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray you just continue to come aflame in their hearts to convict and to counsel. And Lord, we pray that you constantly paint a beautiful picture of hope that is a marriage that is far more beautiful and amazing than anything they could have ever dreamed for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we guys thank them. All right, so I know a lot of this was marriage, and so again, for you singles, but I want to I say this too. If you're single, aspire to this type of stuff. Like, live this type of way now. Serve your brothers and sisters in Christ in these type of ways. Die to self. Fully submit yourself. Give everything to serve one another that, that, the, that the world would see the gospel in the way that we serve one and love one another, okay? Um, especially, listen, if you're in dating relationships, man, use this as like a, am I sure I want to marry this dude, right? Like, is this is this his trajectory? Because I guarantee, listen, he's not going to be perfect. He's going to screw it up, okay? But is this the trajectory? Like, when I look at that dude's life, does he have a desire to die for me? right? In every way. Does he have a desire to lay it down, right? Is there space for me to flourish in this relationship, okay? If it's not, if those are two no's, you need to get out. Like, I'm just, uh, you need to break up. That's just the way it is. Someone else will come along. Hopefully, they'll serve in that. Or you need to be like, hey, we're going on a super long break while you get some mentorship and get your junk figured out, okay? And so, we'll, we'll do that too, okay? So, that, that's a big part of it. And then, and then vice versa. Men, like, if you're trying, okay, who, who do I want to marry? You got to think through, okay, does this work? Is this a woman, right, that I am willingly, not willing, but like wanting to continually die for, like, no matter what, that I'm always going to be like, nope, laying it down, right? She's going to flourish. She's going to flourish. She's going to flourish. Is that your driving heart at her? And then as you woman, man, that you just respect and acknowledge her giftings and desire to serve alongside her to present the gospel to the world, okay? Now, again, this was, so, we, there's so much more to talk about. I'm sorry we're we going to wrap up, okay? And some of you are thinking, no, like, please wrap it up. But um, please. If you have questions on this, we'd love to talk to you further. And I get that there's controversy. There's some hurt that's behind this as well. If there's any abuse stuff out there, if there's any questions, come and talk to us. Please, again, married couples, like engage. Come to this conference, I think, uh, or seminar, or boot camp, I think we're calling it. Um, we'd love to have you. I think it would be, I think it'd be phenomenal. So let's bow our heads and ask the Spirit of God to conform us and change us into his image. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for something beautiful, God, that you're writing in this world. And we pray, Lord, that you would, um, man, that you would just continue to write it in our hearts, that, Lord, we would be a faithful people to you. God, that, that if, you, if for all the husbands in the room, Lord, that we would just look at the gospel and we would just know, and there's a way that I'm supposed to live my life.
uh, that wives would look at the gospel as a way that I'm called to live my life. God, and that for male and female, husband and wife, the way we live our lives is like you, Jesus. That we just try and be like you. And so, Holy Spirit, we, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and make us more like Christ this morning. That we'd serve each other, whether we're single or married, God, that we would submit and, and serve in the God-given roles that you've established, Lord, for the beautiful picture of the gospel you wish to present to the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.